Thank you, worship team. Are you excited this morning? Boy, if that doesn't excite you, then I don't know what will. Knowing that he has risen from the grave so that we can live forever. That's just an amazing thought, and, and I'm so thankful to, uh, to the Lord for that. As, as we continue in our journey with, with Joshua, we're coming near the end of the journey with Joshua, and we've really reached that pinnacle of the story. Joshua and the Israelites have already learned many lessons about faith. They've learned how to overcome cowardice. They've learned how to overcome conceit by trusting in the Lord their God. And we've begun to see two complementary natures of God. We see that on one side, God is merciful. And at the same time, we see his justice. And his justice is always intact. And we see how these two things, which at first glance seem to be diametrically opposed, but yet God is 100% merciful. He's 100% just. And we begin today to see, as we come to the summary, we're just going to read for the next chapter and a half or so, we read a, a summary of all that God did through Joshua, all that God did through the, uh, the people, of, the children of Israel. And as we come to this summary, we're going to see how God's justice and his mercy get played out together for us, the human race. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 11, and we'll read verses 16 through 20. Joshua eleven sixteen through 20. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All of the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Well, when we look at these few verses, as we look at the summary of what God has done through Joshua, through the people of Israel, we come to these verses and we begin to see that there's really only two paths in life, and you have to choose one or the other. And these have to do with these two character traits that we have seen in God throughout the book of Joshua. We've seen his, his mercy, we've seen his justice, and his mercy is played out in what we call salvation. His justice then gets played out in what we call judgment or condemnation. And in these verses, we actually see a little bit of both of these going on, don't we? When we look at them, in fact, let's take a closer look. Let's just look at verses 16 through 18. And we, we, uh, as we read through verses 16 through 18, we really get a geographical description of what God has done through Joshua, through the Israelites as they went through. And it, and it goes and gives you a geographical description. We're not going to take the time to look at each of the locations mentioned here. Uh, but suffice it to say that basically it walks through exactly what we have just been reading about over the past several weeks. Really walking through the southern kingdom and then eventually uh, the northern kingdoms. And we, we read... And we've been reading for the last week the, the types of descriptions that God uses to how he, he took on those enemies. And we find, uh, but, uh, right here, we find that they struck them by the edge of the sword. They were to be utterly destroyed and left none remaining. Now, there's an exception to that. But this is the, 
this is the language that we find of what God was doing to his enemies. We see the judgment of God very clearly in those first few verses, do we not? And we see the, we see the judgment of God, but then when we come to verse 19, we begin to see the judgment, the justice of God and the judgment of God alongside of the salvation of God. Let's read verse 19 together uh, one more time. It says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All of the others they took in battle. Here we, get, we begin to see both sides. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, salvation and judgment, what side was saved from judgment? Who was that in, the, in, the, in this verse? The Hivites. Real, and more specifically, the inhabitants of one city. What city was that? Gibeon. And so the salvation was made available to them in the sense that they were no longer considered enemies of God, but they actually became allies of God, friends of God, like the song that we sang today, to the point that when the other enemies of God decided to attack Gibeon, the Lord said, I am going to come to their aid. Why? Because they're mine now. They had made a treaty with Israel. They, be, they became part of the people of Israel. That's who we see in the story receiving salvation. But judgment, for whom else? Yeah, really, for the entire promised land. The inhabitants of the promised land, those who were there beforehand, all of them made the choice not to, not to make a, a treaty with God, not to make peace with God, but to go their own way. They actually chose to fight against God. Isn't that what we read in the verse? As it said in verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, who, who they had recognized as being from the Lord, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They were the only ones to do so. They were the only ones. So as we look at salvation and judgment, we're going to look at what the Bible says. There are four things that we're going to learn about salvation and four things that we're going to learn about judgment. So if you're taking notes, you could put a line right down the middle of your page, and we're going to write one through four on the left and one through four on the right, because we're going to talk about four things and their counterparts uh, when we talk about judgment as well. We're going to look at these, but here's the first thing we learn about salvation. Number one, Salvation is available for any who would make peace with God. Isn't that what we find in the verse? Salvation is available for any who would make peace with God. Those who fought against Israel, it was a different story, but those who were willing to make peace with God, God was there and willing to make peace with them. In fact, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, this is when God gave them the instruction. This is before they entered the land, God gave them the law Deuteronomy, so that they knew what to do when they entered the land. And as they were to enter the land, he gave them these, these verses. It says in verse 21, or verse 12 and 13 of, of chapter 21, Now if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. And from there, we begin to read the, the wording of how God talked about destroying the enemies the inhabitants of the promised land. But this is an if-then. It's a conditional directive given from God to the people of Israel. If, if what? If the city does not make peace with you. What does that imply? That every city that they conquered, everyone, as we mentioned these cities, it, it, it sounds almost like, wow, did God really ask them to destroy all those people? And we might struggle with that. But guess what? Every city had the opportunity to choose. 
they saw what God did with the Jordan River. They saw what God did when they crossed the Jordan River. And then they marched around the city of Jericho. They saw the, the, the walls fall. They know, they've heard these stories. They know about it because the Bible even says that it went throughout all the land. They knew about it. And that's why they decided to band together to fight against God's people. They had the choice to fight against God's people or they had the choice to comply and make peace with God. Those are the two choices. You know, there's nothing really in between those two choices. There's compliance or defiance. And oftentimes I think we think that there are some other options, but really we don't see any other options. We see the one city that was saved and a person. So God, God did deal with uh, an individual who feared the Lord as well. Remember Rahab? And so we see God dealing with one city and really one person outside of that city that wanted to fear the Lord. They wanted to make peace with the Lord, and so they complied with the Lord, and God provided them salvation. They didn't uh, suffer the fate that everyone else had to suffer. You know, there are only two choices. Make peace with God on his terms or face judgment and condemnation. I think sometimes we think there are other choices. Uh, one of the other choices that, that we oftentimes think we, we can make is uh, to make peace with God on your own terms. Right? Think, well, you know, I can just come to my own understanding with God. God gives us a path of salvation. He tells us what we should do, how to be saved. And we say, no, you know, I don't like that path of salvation. I think I'll come up with my own. And we, in, we, instead, we, we instead of worshiping God for who he is, we create God in our own image. I mean, how many times on Facebook do you, do you see comments and things like, well, I couldn't worship a God who... dot, dot, dot. Why? It's because not, it's not the God that you've put into your image and you've created the God you want to worship. That's not the way it works. I'm sorry to say. We have to, we have to face the fact that there is a God. He already exists. He is who he is. We choose to worship him. We choose to make treaty with him or not. Period. Right? We can't say, but, but you know what? Um, if, if I have to go through salvation the way he suggests, I have to really humble myself because I can't deserve heaven. I can't earn my way to heaven, so I'm going to earn my way to heaven instead. Guess what? You're trying to make peace with God on your own terms. Does that work? Or read Joshua 11. Does it work? It does not work. We can't come to God on our own terms. That's why Jesus said uh, that it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than it is uh, or, um, excuse me, um, Jesus said, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's like taking a camel through the eye of the needle. Why? It's difficult, because they have to humble themselves. I think I've mentioned this before. The, the, uh, the eye of the needle is a gate, a small gate, that enters into the city, and so the rich men never went through there. Why? Because you'd have to take all their possessions off of their camels, and a camel can get through the eye of the needle, but not with all your stuff. And so there are people who say, well, I want to I meet God on my own terms, and I want to keep my stuff, and I want to keep my pride, and I want to keep... No. You have to empty yourself and accept the gift that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for your sins. You can't earn any of it. That requires full humility, does it not? To say, I didn't deserve any of this. And God's saying, that's the requirement. And other people, I don't want that. What are they doing? They're trying to make, make, make peace with God on, their, on your own terms doesn't work. 
The other way I think people oftentimes, will, what they'll do is, is they'll, they'll try to choose living the way they want and, and thinking that somehow they're going to escape God's wrath down the road. That's how the majority of the world responds. If I pretend that he doesn't exist, then I can at least say to him when he judges me, Lord, I didn't even know you existed. How could I have followed all your laws? Right? And God's going to be able to reach their heart, and they're going to know the truth, and they're, and they're going to be condemned by their own thoughts, their own words, their own actions. Because I believe, I sincerely believe, by the way, an atheist is not someone who believes in his head that there is no God. I believe what Psalm says, an atheist is a person who believes in his heart there is no God. And what's the difference? They know there's a God, but because of their unrighteousness, they, don't, they choose not to believe. That's what disbelieve actually means. I don't disbelieve in, in the Easter Bunny because I've never believed in him. But when you disbelieve in something, you're, you're, you're choosing not to believe in something that you know deep down is true. And that's what we find. We have a lot of people who think they can escape judgment when guess what? You can't. The two choices. You make peace with God on his terms or you suffer the condemnation and the judgment. Isn't that what the verse says? Okay, so I'm not telling you this. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot me, all right? But it's the truth. But it's, it ends up bringing us to better news than what we, we, we ever thought. All that we just sang about, that's the good news. Good news doesn't make a lot of sense if we don't understand the bad news. So let's look at what, judge, what we learn about judgment. What we learn about judgment is that judgment is destined for all who remain enemies of God. You know, we're born sinners... We are born with obstacles between us and God. And we have to at some point come to accept the gift of salvation. If not, if we remain as enemies of God, then judgment is what is required. Judgment is what God is going to bring upon us. You know, there's a second thing we learn about salvation, though, as we read this verse. We also learn that salvation is not determined by your works but by your willingness to make peace with God. It, salvation is not determined by your works. How do we know that? Well, let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Number one, what were the inhabitants of the promised land guilty of? Let's think about that for a second. What were the inhabitants of the promised land guilty of? I mean, why did they deserve the judgment? Why did they deserve the condemnation? In the, the, the short answer is they distorted God's gifts. That's a very short answer. You could really say that about almost any sin it's a, it's a selfish way of distorting God's gifts. Here's what it was specifically for them. Two gifts I'll mention. There were more. But they distorted God's gift of sex. Right? The belief the, the structure that they had in Gibeon, the belief structure that they had throughout the promised land, and the, the religions that they did were sex cults. So we have to think about what is God's gift of sex? I mean, first of all, God's gi- gift of sex is a, an expression of of marital intimacy. In fact, when you think about the word intimacy, it, it has two connotations. It, it, there's this concept of being secret or hidden, and then there's the concept of being exclusive. So the idea is that you share exclusively with, what, with somebody what is secret or hidden, what you don't reveal to other people. So when you have relational intimacy with somebody, you're saying, there are things that I will share with you that I will not share with other people. I have a wife. There are things that I will share with her. There are, are emotions that I will feel, frustrations that I feel, all sorts of things that I will share with her that, guess what? I don't really open up and share all of that stuff with everybody. Right? Why? Because we have intimacy. 
God designed sex to be a beautiful expression of that. So, there, so physically, I can express to my wife the intimacy that we have in our relationship. Does that make sense? Is that a beautiful thing or an ugly thing? That's a beautiful thing. And God created it. And, and he created it for us. It's a beautiful thing. What the inhabitants of the promised land did is they took that gift of God and they distorted it. There's no sense of, of secretness or, or, or exclusivity. In fact, acts of, uh, sexual acts were done in public for all to see, on display. There no, there's no hiding. There's no, no intimacy there because it's shared with everybody. I'd say it, but I think our culture is getting closer and closer to that. But we, they distorted God's gift of sex. God gave them, gave them something, and they totally distorted They take the meaning right out of it. It doesn't have any meaning compared to what God intended for it. Not only did they distort God's meaning, gift of sex, but I'm going to share one more. They distorted God's gift of life. You know, God created the system so that when you have this level of intimacy— and you have this exclusivity sealed with the vow of marriage, and you have that, the product can be having children. Because then you're ready to have children. Then you're ready. When you have a mom and a dad who love each other, they're committed to each other, then you have a healthy environment for a child to grow in. When you distort God's gift of sex you're going to have children, and you have children without having parents that love each other and committed to each other and so on. Does that make sense? And so they distorted the gift of life. So they had unwanted pregnancies. They had children that were born because of this. But what do you do with all of these children? And they don't have parents, right? They have biological parents, but they don't have parents. So what do you do? They threw them into the fire. There were multiple religions going on, but in Baal worship and the Molech worship and so on, all of, these, all of them had this in common. They were sex cults, and they killed their babies. And do you think that God's going to let the murder of all these babies go unpunished? No, not the God I read about in Joshua 11. He's a God of justice. But he's also a God of mercy. And so salvation is not determined by works. How do we know that? Because when we actually look at at what the people were guilty of, let me ask you the second question. What were the inhabitants of Gibeon guilty of doing? The same exact thing. Let that sink in for a moment. The people of Gibeon, there's just as much archaeological evidence for for them following all of the religions that everyone else did as anyone else. And God chose to save people who distorted his gift of sex and who distorted his gift of life itself. And God said, I'm going to save them. The others, no. But the people of Gibeon, yes. Rahab, yes. The people of Jericho, no. What's the difference? It's not their works, is it? Because they had the same works. Salvation is not determined by your works, but by your willingness to make peace with God. One thing that Rahab and one thing that the Gibeonites had in common, they saw what God had done, they feared him, and they said, I've got to be on that side. I want to be on God's side. And so Rahab hid the spies, the Gibeonites made a treaty. They didn't do it in the greatest way. They're new believers in Yahweh, right? So let's cut them a little bit of slack. They didn't do it in the greatest way, but you know what? They still 
started by fearing the Lord above all else. And they did that. And so the, what made the determining factor here was not their past. I don't know about you, but that's good news. How many of you have ever done something wrong in the past? Yeah. I should see a few more hands in that, right? Okay. Right. I, really, we should be raising two hands, right? Why? Because we're all guilty of stuff. So this is good news. The good news is that salvation is not determined by that. You know, I had someone in my office this week who had confessed to a sin, and she started crying. And you know what she said? She said, can God forgive me for this? Guess what? He can forgive you of a whole lot more than that. He can take you. You could be someone like maybe take Saul of Tarsus who killed Christians for a living. He persecuted Christians, God's people for a living. God not only saved them, turned them into an apostle. Right? So if he can save him, can he save you? He sure can. I don't know what you're guilty of today. There might be people who are coming in here saying, Pastor, oh, but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Salvation is not determined by your works. Praise the Lord. Because I would not be saved. And neither would anyone in this room. Amen? So we see salvation is not determined by works. The flip side, um, um, we'll find in just a moment. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, New Testament verse, shares this very clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is what? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation has nothing to do with earning or deserving. Nothing to do with your works. So the flip side of this is that judgment, on the other hand, is determined by your works. Justice is determined by your works. You see, if you become a, if you become an ally of God, then all of your works in the past, all of those things that you ever have done or ever will do, those things have already been paid for by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you reject that sin, then guess what comes back into play? Every sin that you've ever done or ever will do. You will be judged according to those works. Do you believe me? In fact, you can go all the way into the future. You can go all the way to Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. The second to last chapter of the Bible is, as you come to the culmination, the consummation of all time, and this is what we read. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what? Their works. Those who died were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books. What does that mean? God has books. He's keeping track. And he knows everything that you've ever done. That's a, is that a scary thought? Some of you might think, yeah, but I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a pretty good person, you know, in fact, I think if a, if a pretty good person would do good, say, maybe doing one wrong thing a day, saying one wrong thing a day, and maybe thinking one wrong thing a day. All right? So let's take that. If a person does three wrong things a day in a year, how many sins is that? Okay, it's over a thousand. That's good enough. You don't have to be great at math. All right? I won't, I won't push your math brains uh, too, too far today. So let's just say a little over a thousand. 
And let's say you live to be 80 years old. I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing. Some will live more, some will live less. But on average, let's say 80 years old. Um, how many sins is that? It's over 80,000. If I went to court and I had 80,000 traffic violations, what kind of judge would say, well, that's pretty good. So I'm just going to forgive them all. No, we will be judged according to our works. Whatever you've done wrong, you've got to make it right. If you don't let Jesus make it right for you. You've got to make it right. And so it goes on to say, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Then it says in verse 13, Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, oftentimes uh, translated as hell, delivered up the dead uh, who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Judgment is determined by your works. But verse 15 gives us some good news. It says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You say, how's that good news? Because when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we make peace with God. Guess what? Our names become written in the book of life, and we're not judged according to those works. Period. Everything that I've done wrong is forgiven. Jesus nailed to the cross. Everything that you've done wrong. I don't care what it is. So salvation is not determined by your works. Judgment, however, is. Third point, uh, uh, but what it teaches us about salvation, number one, or number three, salvation tends to be accepted by the few. Salvation tends to be accepted by the few. It, it, not everyone wants salvation. Not everyone uh, is going to, to, to uh, receive salvation. In fact, in the case of, of Joshua 11, we find Gibeon, which is one city amongst all of the promised land. It's the few who accepted, not the many. Which brings us to the counterpoint that in judgment, uh, judgment tends to be the result of the many. You think, why would people do that? Why would people choose judgment? Matthew 7, 13, 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide, for wide, um, excuse me, uh, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is the nature of salvation and judgment, isn't it? Not everybody wants it. They want to live life their own way. They want to do things their own way. And it's, it's available for everyone. But not everyone is going to want it. So let me ask you this. Why can't I live how I want to now and just ask God to save me later? Right? Is that a good idea? I can just live how I want now, be the boss of my own life, and then wait till, you know, I, I'm on my deathbed and say, oh, okay, I'm nearing the end of my life. Okay, now, Lord, all right, save me now. Right? Get the best of both worlds. Is there some problems with that thinking? There is. Let's take a look at the next verse. Verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord 
had commanded Moses. Did we just read that? It was of the Lord to harden their hearts? Wow, that seems, it seems counter to, to what we want to believe, at least, right? And, uh, but we read that in verse 20 very clearly. It brings us to, the, to the, our, our last point. Salvation is available for a time while your heart is soft. But your heart isn't always going to be soft to the gospel. Have you ever met someone, they were just hardened to the gospel? You met someone where you, you, you try to bring up the gospel and they just put up the walls right away, like, don't, don't even bring that up. Yeah, we've, we've all met people that way. How does a person get to be that way? You see, salvation is available for a time while your heart is soft. You know, there are two elements when we think about it. At the moment of salvation, there are two things that have to be present biblically. At the moment of salvation, when a person accepts, accepts the free gift of eternal life, there's conviction of the Holy Spirit. John 16 very clearly states this. And then all through the book of John, we see that there has to be a response by faith. John 3.16 would be an example of this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. That's the verb form of faith. And so when you have these two together, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and a response of faith, that's where you have this window of opportunity where a person can accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, Right? And so both of these have to be present. So we have to be careful. Even in the way we evangelize people, we have to remember that both of these things are available. So if there's any obstacles that we're putting to, to that hinder someone from accepting something by faith, then that's our problem, isn't it? Right? So if we're telling someone that they need to be saved, but we're, we're not living a Christian life in front of them, then whose fault? Who's at fault? That's, that's our problem, isn't it? I, I remember going on a missions trip and uh, one of the teens was uh, playing. We had a long uh, uh, layover or something in the airport. And so he starts playing this, his guitar and singing, singing out loud. And you could tell that those who were trying to sleep around were bothered by it. And so they finally asked him, could you please stop playing the music? We're tired. We're trying to get some sleep. And so what did he do? He sang louder because he's proclaiming the truth. Really? You know, the... the the message and the method really didn't go together. And so, yeah, we, we understand this. A person has to respond by faith. So we want to make sure that our methods match the message. Amen? At the same time, we cannot forget that it requires the conviction of the Holy Spirit. A big part of evangelism is getting on our knees and praying that the Holy Spirit would convict people of sin. Isn't that true? And praying that the Holy Spirit would change them. Romans 10.1 we see is, My prayer for you is for your, for your salvation. Uh, we, we see that these two things have to be in place. So when we look at the flip side of this, we see that there comes a time when God withdraws his mercy and your heart becomes hard. See, salvation is available for a time while your heart is soft, but there comes a time when God withdraws his mercy, and when he does that, what happens? Your heart becomes hard. You say, well, pastor, I don't know if I like the way that sounds. It doesn't matter. It's in Joshua 11, right? God wrote this. And so we see it. It's in it. And there's a part. And so what happens, to put it in, in simple terms, is, is maybe that conviction of the Holy Spirit isn't going to be there tomorrow. And if you think you're going to respond in faith, guess what? It doesn't happen. Not when your heart is hard. Romans 3.10 says, No one seeks by nature. No one seeks the Lord. No one seeks righteousness. It doesn't happen. 
In fact, uh, we find this terminology all the way back in, uh, in Exodus with, uh, with Pharaoh. Remember where Pharaoh hardened his heart? Are we all f- are familiar with the story? It begins with Pharaoh asking God. Well, it actually begins with Moses saying to Pharaoh, God says, let his people go. Pharaoh says, well, who is Yahweh? Who's he, who is he that I should obey him? Because who did he think he was? He thought he was the God over all of Egypt. So he's saying, who is Yahweh? And God decides to answer, and he answers with plagues. Right? Remember, and I, I've mentioned this multiple times. Uh, and there might be some new here, so I'll mention it briefly. But there were nine great gods of Egypt, plus the Pharaoh himself. And so as you look at the nine great gods of Egypt, God wants to show his power over all of them. Oh, you worship the Nile? I'll turn it into blood. Right? All the way down to, oh, you worship Ra, the sun god? I'm going to give you darkness. Right? And God one by one, flexes his muscles over the gods of all of Egypt. Why? Because this isn't just a message to answer the question for Pharaoh. This is the message that he wants to answer for all people for all time. And so, um, so one by one, Moses starts giving them the plagues of Egypt, starting with blood. Um, but if, if Pharaoh had responded properly at that point, that would have lost, would have lost his message for all time, Right? But who hardened his heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Well, if you read in, Ex- in Exodus seven fourteen, you find that the answer to that question is Pharaoh. It says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, then comes the plague of frogs. Who hardened his own heart? Pharaoh. Then lice. According to, to Exodus uh, eight nineteen, it was Pharaoh that hardened his heart. How about Flies. Pharaoh. How about cattle? Pharaoh. You see, you get this pattern, and so as you're reading, oh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you come to the sixth plague, the plague of the boils, and we read something very different in Scripture. What does it say? It says it was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why is that? Because there came this point where Pharaoh was willing to let the people go, not because of any change of mind about who God was, not because of any change of character. In fact, he still wanted to be the God of his people. He, that was his, consider, his, his thoughts. He wanted God to be gone simply because he was sick of plagues. Does that make sense? He was just sick of plagues. And he was ready to let them go just to get them out of there. But guess what? God wasn't done talking. He's still making his point. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see the boils. Hail was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Locusts, it was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Darkness, same thing. The firstborn child, same thing. We read the Lord hardened his heart. What do we find? We find God extending mercy way beyond what is deserved. Giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But there came a point where he said, I'm done. I'm withdrawing my mercy. And his heart became hard. He no longer accepted the truth. And so we have to be very careful when we keep those things in mind. Why did he do that? Exodus 10, 1 1 and 2 tells us exactly. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Why? So that I may show these signs of mine before him. What was he saying? I'm not done talking yet. Pharaoh asked a question. He asked, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I'm still answering that question. Verse 2, 
And so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them and that you may know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. God's saying, this is not just for Pharaoh. This is for generation after generation after generation. This actually became a dated calendar event. Uh, you know, so the, they, they dated their calendar after the Exodus, you know, after these plagues which led them to the Exodus. And uh, the next time that we see the calendar changing like that at that scale is when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, right? And we still follow that calendar. And so God was making a big statement, and so he hardened Pharaoh's heart. I know you might say, well, Pastor Dave, that's Old Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament, right? Well, two problems with that. Does God change? No, he doesn't. Second problem is we find an example right in the New Testament as well. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, he's talking about the end times. And, he sa- and Paul sa- writes these words, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Talking about the Antichrist. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth, the love of the truth, that they might be saved. What was Paul saying? God extended them the truth, but they didn't want the truth. They didn't love the truth. They loved unrighteousness. That's what they wanted. So he says in verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. God won't lie. But he's not going to allow them to believe the truth anymore so that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What do we see? We see that time where God's withdrawing himself. And he's saying, it's too late. You're going to believe what you're going to believe. Are these strong words? Let me go back to the question. Why can't I live how I want now and ask God to save me later? Why? Because really, if this is your desire, you've already made your choice. See, believing in God is not just saying, I believe in the facts of the gospel. What does James say about that? He says, even the demons believe in the facts of the gospel. They believe in Jesus But believing is really believing in. And so if Jesus says this is a better way to live your life, then you're going to strive for that kind of life. If Jesus says that you should do this, then you're going to do this. You believe in him. You're a follower of him. And so if you say, but I want to live as the boss of my own life, what are you really saying? My way is better. Is that belief? It's not. It is a rejection of what God is offering to you. Does that mean God will never soften your heart again? No. He can soften your heart. It's, It's his choice. But... If your heart is soft today, there is no guarantee that it will be soft tomorrow. Isn't that true? If, if your heart is soft right now, if the Holy Spirit is working in you right now, there is no guarantee that that's going to happen again. And you might say, oh, but, but Pastor Dave, I know, I know that later on I'll, I'll accept the gift. Guess what? You will not. You will not. It's what the Bible says. So what about you today? I'm going to ask three simple questions. What about you today? Number one, is the Holy Spirit convicting you right now? Maybe you've made peace with God in the past, but you did it on your own terms. Maybe you never really accepted Him to be your Lord and Savior. Today's the day to make it right. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you today, respond today. Or maybe, maybe you figured, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. You don't know if later is ever going to be available. 
today is the day of salvation. So the second question, is your heart soft today? Is your heart soft today? Are you willing to say, Lord, I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior? Because it might not be soft tomorrow. And the last question, will you respond in faith while you can? Let's bow our heads just for a moment and, and close our eyes. I want to share with you two verses, or a few verses, from Romans 10. We read, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means you, you, you say, Lord, I want, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. You surrender control and you, the authority of, from yourself to Him. And it goes on to say, And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. You believe that He paid for your sins on the cross. Then it says, You shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is an opportunity. And if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart today, do not ignore him. If you are not 100% sure today, that you are on your way to heaven, that you have a personal relationship with God, and that your sins are forgiven. Do not leave today without making that right. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And I don't want to embarrass anyone. I don't want to force anyone to come up to the front or anything like that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is when we sing this song in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to just quietly sneak out and go to the back of the auditorium you just go right out the doors as if you were leaving. And you'll be met there by some people who can take you to a room and just spend a few moments with you and show you from God's word how you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. Before we sing the song, in just a moment we'll sing. We'll pray and then, I'll, and then we'll sing. But I just want to ask, is there anyone in here that would be willing to raise their hand right now and say, Pastor Dave, I'm the one being, I'm, I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit today. Is there anyone? Just raise your hand. No one's looking around. If that's you today, it's time to make it right. Make it right with the Lord. And then for those who say, I know for sure I'm saved. I know I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then today should be a day of celebration. Because when we think of the judgment we deserve, and then we compare that to the grace that God has given us, we can do nothing else but be thankful. Amen? Let's pray.